I'm John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing both of the Sicario movies, uh, the original from 2015 and Day of the Soldado, the recent sequel, plus the commercial-turned-feature film Uncle Drew, produced by Pepsi. That's not a joke, I'll get into it. And then a Netflix and chat about Allegro Non Troppo, uh, an Italian parody of Fantasia that I mentioned in the last week's episode, and Jurassic Park 3. Let's get started. They want me to cut ties. You gotta get rid of her. I can't do that. Don't put me in that situation. You gotta do what you gotta do. I'm gonna need a strike team to Blackhawks. Drones with attack capability. Where's the coup? Mexico. You have no reason to trust me. But trusting me is how you're going to survive. Good luck. Luck doesn't live on this side of the border. I'll admit... That Sicario was one of those movies that I I think I had seen it twice before, if not at least once, and yet I couldn't remember a single thing from it until I rewatched it. It didn't stick in my head in the slightest, and that's the thing. This is from uh, a young, you know, not young, but a recent, you know, indie darling, art house darling, Denis Villeneuve, who. Not only just did, not only recently did Arrival, but last year's sequel to Blade Runner. So, and he's I think even tackled to do other. I think Dune is is, is what he's rumored to be attached to next. But you know he's a you know between Prisoners, Enemy, Arrival, and even this, Denis Veneuve is a really well regarded director. Plus, this is from screenwriter Taylor Sheridan, who brought us Hell or High Water. And um, also wrote, I believe, I believe wrote, I'm not sure if he directed the uh, movie, one of my favorite movies of last year, Wind River. So these are two filmmakers that I really like, plus great cast and a solid premise. The idea of taking a close look at the gray areas of morality in the war on drugs and fighting against the Mexican cartels. And yet... I like it's good. It's not a bad movie, but I'll be damned if it isn't just completely forgettable to me. Like the movie opens with finding dead bodies in a house in Arizona, and I can't remember stuff from it. Like the first thing I actually remembered from the movie was the whole subplot of the of the cartel member and his kid playing soccer. That's that's the first thing I remember from the movie, and that's only once I had once the scene came up. Everything to do with that and the um, the actual shootout on the highway was a scene that I also remembered. But I think the pro- main problems here are Denis Villeneuve is a slow burn director. Not only that, he is very methodical and quiet. I'm able to remember stuff from Arrival and even uh, Blade Runner because that works. But here, I don't know if it works as well. I feel like, I don't feel like what 
um, going for the action route is is a good idea. But I feel like if you're going to tackle such heavy material, you don't want to be quiet about it. You want to be more. You want to be more there in the moment, and I feel like that's the whole th- problem with Sicario is. Emily, we're, everything is so soft-spoken and quiet and slow that it's more likely to put the audience to sleep unless they're tr- there to actually like analyze and look at the look at what the scenes on screen and be like, okay, yes, hmm, stroking their chins and like, yes, yes, I see what you did there, and that's not fun. That's, I mean, that's the whole point. I mean, I, I'm not expecting it to be fun. He's not a fun movie director, but at, the, but at least you should be engaged by what you're seeing. Compare this to Prisoners. Prisoners also deals with moral gray areas, and it talks about what happens when a parent is pushed to an extreme because they feel that justice has not been served. That is interesting, and he handles it much better. And... Even with Arrival, we're talking about the idea of a low-key, hard-science look at actually translating alien languages. And it's told out of sequence, there are memor- there's things with memory, it deals with time, time jumping, and it's int- but it's interesting to watch and it's engaging to you, the audience, based on what's going on. It's enticing you to keep be- watching. Here, it's almost so so plotting that it completely misses the whole reason we should be watching which is it should be like this tense thriller almost like a silence of the lambs almost and yet he never goes that route he's more like he's more like hmm yes this scene makes sense let us do let us do it this way so that it looks this certain way hmm yes he seems more like a professor designing this thing for a lecture rather than a filmmaker trying to tell an engaging story. Like, if he was trying to be engaging with this, he feels way too quiet and reserved. Like, like even emotional aspects of, like, Emily Blunt breaking down or being assaulted by John Barenthal. Or the, even the climactic engagement with um, Benicio del Toro and the man who uh, you know ruined his life essentially, all of that is so quiet and reserved and boring ultimately that I don't I honestly would have been fine never going back to this movie again. I, like if if it were not for the sequel, I would just have gone on with my life thinking, oh yeah, that's fine. And yet I gave it four stars when I initially watched it, despite not remembering a single thing about it. So, not to mention the fact that between the slow pace and all and all of the and the quiet dialogue, like literally quiet dialogue, almost whispering at a lot of points. This movie, maybe it's just Amazon because I watched it through Amazon Video, but it was visually dark. Like I could not see images on the screen because the lighting was so dark. Like, it's almost relied too much on natural lighting, and so we couldn't actually see what was going on. And I feel like that was... That also kind of led 
to the idea that uh, this is a good movie to fall asleep to, despite the fact that it's dealing with a very controversial and and life-changing and life-threatening subject matter. This should be more engaging, and yet it isn't upon rewatch. And maybe it is for you. Let me know. Uh, but personally, I couldn't get engaged in it. Not you know, I wasn't really that engaged in it the first time, and I couldn't stay engaged the second time. And I probably, unless I try to do a third one, I probably won't even remember this even exists. So, with that in mind, let's talk about that sequel because it fixes some of the problems I had with the first Sicario. In fact, the first half actually does a good job of building on to the world that the previous movie introduced. The idea being that the cartel's illegal activities are putting more American lives at risk, and Josh Brolin is encouraged to go out of his way to try and, to try and solve the problem by any means necessary, essentially. And he, does, he wants to do so by causing a rift between the various cartels. Specifically, two of the main ones. The Reyes, I believe. And um, I forget what the other one was. Let me double check. Um, apparently, there isn't that much information about the two cartels in Day of the Soldado. Because, they, uh, because I know the Reyes one, because that ties into the one character's name. Uh, but... I didn't see any reference to with the rival uh, cartel that they're trying to uh, they're trying that they're trying to um, pit against each other. They're not really saying which is which. You know, they're the names of these cartels, uh, from what I can tell. Let me see. Uh, maybe one of the reviews has it. No, and I don't even know if that's the it's, it's technically the Reyes cartel. I just know the main kingpin is named Reyes. But yeah, the point is he's the Brolin's character is trying to pit two cartels against each other. He uh, performs a hit on one of the uh, cartel's uh, lawyers, and then ha- and then poses as that same that cartel's agents to kidnap Reyes's daughter, played by. Uh, Isabel, Isabella Monet, uh, who is, I believe it's pronounced Monet, M-L-N-E-R, who was just, who was, um, the, uh, girl, the teenage girl in, um, Transformers The Last Night. Oh, come on. Wikipedia doesn't have, uh, her last name pronunciation. Uh, IMDB, maybe? Holy cow, she's a Cleveland girl. Yeah. What up? Apparently she's also going to be Dora the Explorer, even though she's like almost 20. She's going to be, she's she's only 16. 18? 18. No, 17. She is 17 currently. And, and she's, and she's supposed to be playing Dora the Explorer. That's, that's some, that's some casting you got there. Uh. Come on, give me... How do you pronounce her name? Why won't it tell me how to... 
I want, I had this problem last week when I talked, or a couple weeks ago when I talked about, uh, when I talked about the bow director, whose name I've already forgotten. Sorry, ma'am, miss, you are amazing, and I can't wait for your future film. Um, um, here we go. How Isabella Mon? How how do we? Uh... And nobody has said here. Let's try this. That can't be right. It's saying Moner. That's that doesn't feel right. What about what about this one? Moner. Isabella Moner. Okay, that that sounds more accurate. Why is freaking robots picking everything? Mona, uh, well, she's Peruvian, so Peruvian surname Moner. That name is not coming up. Maybe I know one of her parents is Peruvian. Uh, let's take a look at that biography again. Uh, born in Cleveland, Ohio, Peruvian from Lima, and okay, no Patrick, something from Louisiana. Okay, so her dad's from Louisiana, but we don't know anything about where his background is. So I still have no idea. Hold on. I know how to I know how to solve this. Somebody has to introduce her. So, we find a video clip of her being introduced on a talk show. Easy. Why are they talking about the boy she's dated? God, celebrity culture is so freaking creepy. That's the trailer. Um so this is just an article. I need the video. Here, let's try that. These are supposed... I'm looking for videos. Why isn't this giving... Here, let's try this one. Monair. Monair. Okay. Let me try one more just to uh, be safe. Monair. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Monair. I just want to know these people's names. Okay, so Isabella Morner uh, um, is is the is plays Isabel Reyes, who is the sixteen year old daughter of the kingpin of one of the cartels, and so she's been kidnapped, and under the presumption that it's the rival cartel, while it is um, Brolin and Benicio del Toro and their crew, unfortunately. When they try to execute the ending, the program to get her back as proof of her being part of being kidnapped by that uh, rival cartel, everything there's like a double cross and everything goes to hell 
and she escapes. And so Benicio del Toro follows her and kind of holds on to her to keep her safe from anybody else. And and then out of nowhere, the government's like, well, this operation failed. Shut everything down. Shut it all down. Wrap it up. We're done here. And it's like, cut all ties. No, it's like, it's the weirdest, like... This is this is not that hard of a of a of a fix. Like you just maybe say you were running drills or something. Like why does it all of a sudden? Nope, we gotta shut everything down. Shut it all down. Kill everybody involved. No ties. Cut cut him. It's nothing. Nope. Nope. Any pro, any actual progress we have made in this area done. Nuke it from orbit. That's the only way to be sure. It's. It's so stupid in retrospect. And so as part of that, Benicio Del Toro tries to smuggle uh, Isabel across the border, which ties into a subplot involving a punk-ass kid from Texas whose cousins are in one of the cartels. Doesn't specify which, I don't think. I don't know if they're their own cartel. Nothing is really well explained in this movie. And this punk-ass kid, his whole point in the movie, despite hardly speaking to anybody at all, and just standing there like he's a like he, like he has no idea what's going on. He just sits there like... No idea what's going on in this scene. Just... This is me. This is... Dull surprise. Dull surprise. Uh, I don't even know if it's dull surprise. I think it's just indifference. Complete and utter indifference to the proceedings. And so... Because of this this subplot, this whole subplot involving this kid who gets involved in human trafficking for his cousin's cartel, leads... The whole point of it is to try and build... Sequel bait. It's all it is. It's the ultimate goal of this movie is to try and make more movies despite not knowing if this movie is even going to do that well. Which should come as no surprise to you that all of this comes from the fact that it went from Lionsgate to Sony. Oh, Sony Pictures, I'm going to have a field day with you in a couple of weeks. Oh, I cannot wait. Oh, it's going to be so good to just tear you asunder, you. You just, you, Sony Pictures, the Charlie Brown of motion picture studios. So, yeah, it's, it really is just a complete debacle. And that's the problem. It started off fine. It started off in that same vein. It's morally gray. This time, there's actually going to be more action. It's going to be focusing on the ideas of... The only problem I found is that it never acknowledges the main issue, which is a lot of this stems from American imperialism, not only in the Middle East, but uh, not even American imperialism. This, a lot of, some of this stuff even stems from straight-up um, European imperialism, some of these issues. So... It never tackles those deeper issues. It still is just like surface area criticism of what we're doing. And unfortunately, 
The second act turns into a wannabe of lay on the professional. Come, you know, like the whole pairing. All of that kind of like, I don't know if it ties, but I don't know what the uh, example was before Leon, but the hitman anti-hero compared off with a young girl counterpart screams Leon the professional. And it here it's just so hackneyed and dull. Any, that's the thing. Isabel Reyes in this movie starts off as like a, as like a hard-edged chick who fights back against girls who, who call her out and is like not afraid to throw punches and get into fights and scrapes and is cocky and arrogant because she knows uh, her father's got connections. And then as soon as she's kidnapped, she loses all sense of personality and it sucks. Like, you would think that personality would have carried over for the rest of the movie, but as soon as she's kidnapped, she's just like, well, I guess I'm the MacGuffin now, so I shouldn't have a personality. It's It sucks so much. They could have easily given her a per- kept over that personality of, like, the, of like the hard-edge sort of uh, rich girl with, you know, rich girl from a crime family. Maybe... Maybe maybe she is willing to fight back fight back against the kidnappers or something. Maybe something interesting with this character. Maybe she's willing to shoot a gun or something. I don't know. Just something with her character. All of a sudden, she just becomes a blank slate in the second act. And as soon as the second act starts, you realize, oh, this is not smart in the slightest. That all of the not. I mean, the last movie had nuance and knew how to balance the fact that it's all everything's morally gray so you can't just so it's it's almost like a Rorschach test of who do you think is right but this loses all sense of nuance and now it's just Rambo part Rambo first blood part two essentially only it thinks it's smarter than it is oh yeah we're still making those political commentary yeah that's what we are we're a smart action movie and it's the dumbest, dumbest thing I've seen in a long time. So, I just, this felt like a complete debacle, especially that ending. That ending completely ruined the movie for me. It would have been, it would have been easy to fix and make it fine, but the whole thing just, re- just decided, nope. Gotta make sure you come back for more. Stay tuned, folks. There's gonna be more Sicario. <sighs> Not to mention the fact that I think Day of the Soldado is such a stupid subtitle. Like, the, last, the first subtitle when it was announced was perfect. Sicario, Soldado. Simple, two-word, subti- two-word title. It's Sicario, which is Spanish for Hitman. Soldado, which is Spanish for Soldier. So, first movie was Hitman. Next movie is Hitman Soldier. So it's talking about how he... It's more about the soldiering part of him. It's about the commentary on the military. That's fine. Day of the Soldado. What does that have to do with anything? That literally has nothing to do with the plot of this movie. This movie lasts for more than a day. What day of the soldier are they talking about? What does that have to do with anything? It sounds like a marketing team is like, You know... Soldado's okay, but we need to make sure people remember this movie. So how about we call it Day of the Soldado? That makes it sound 
epic and interesting, and it doesn't have anything to do with anything. It's such a stupid subtitle. You should have just stuck with the first one. Sony, you dumbasses. So yeah, Sicario Day of the Soldado. Unsurprisingly, it didn't live up to the original. And more surprisingly, it just completely nosedived, then crashed and burned in the final scene. So... You can skip it. Come on, Drew, you told me these dudes can play. This dude, he's a karate man. He's meditating right now. This guy right here can't even see. How's that geriatric team of yours? You get them all individual life alert bracelets? You still don't believe, dude. I got each of you a little something. So we gonna ball? We gonna ball. This is when it happens. Let's do this! Play the game the right way. It fixes everything. Get that out of here. This is the moment. You gonna run away from it, or you gonna step up and take it? I get buckets. There are times as a reviewer, and this has taken several years to kind of cultivate this, this notion and to remind myself of it, that I have to acknowledge when a movie is not for me. Sometimes I just have to acknowledge this, I am not the audience for this movie and review it in that mindset, that I cannot speak for the audience that would enjoy this movie. I can only speak for myself. And Uncle Drew is kind of one of those cases wherein this movie clearly wasn't made for me. I don't like basketball. Sorry. I, I had that whole thing planned out this weekend as like a, hey, is it, is it, is it a clever Latin? And it's so stupid. Ugh, so stupid. Anyway, yeah, Uncle Drew. This is going to be the basis for this week's discussion because we're going to be talking about commercials turning into movies and it was way more interesting than i expected it to be upon my research but as for this yeah in case you forgot uncle drew i had never seen these i had no idea these commercials existed but uncle drew is based on a kyrie irving pepsi ad campaign where it's him in old age makeup playing basketball i guess and it's like a famous street ball player and here they've decided, Pepsi has decided not to start its own production company in order to make a movie out of its ad campaign character. It's like them officially making the Noid a movie character. It's so bizarre. But I'll get into that more in the discussion. But uh, as for this, this is better than it had any right to be. This is honestly the best movie to come out this weekend. And that's saying something, because it's not a good movie. The premise here is Lil Rel Howard, who you may remember from The Carmichael Show and from Get Out as um, uh, Daniel Kaluuya's uh, best friend who worked in uh, uh, the TSA. And, he, and here he is, an, a failed high school basketball prodigy, orphan, um, down on his luck, just kind of a schmuck. And he's gotten enough together to run a 
$100,000 award prize winning streetball tournament team. And it's got a famous basketball player, forget who it is. Um, there's a bunch of basketball players in this movie. I mean, the movie opens with a, 30 for, a fake 30 for 30 with um, actual basketball players, including the guy who was famous for being the logo for the NBA and as himself. And so these basketball players all kind of uh, uh, prop up this character of Uncle Drew and his team of streetballers. Apparently, this in this universe... Streetball, blacktop basketball is like a $100,000 award-winning endeavor, which doesn't make any damn sense, but, you know, it's this kind of movie. Um, Aaron Gordon is the basketball player who um, who is uh, basically um, Lil Rel's LeBron. He is the one he uh, laments praise on and is catering to all, all the time. And cares so much about. Um, he is for the Orlando Magic. And he's alright. Like he's uh, almost kind of a cameo. Like bit player. Doesn't really you know, add much to the movie. Although they call him Casper. <laughs> so, um, so take that as you will. Uh, and when Nick Kroll. Who plays the kid who ruined Lil Rel's chance at stardom. In high school. Uh. As this long-term rival who just will not give Lil Rel any semblance of of positivity. He just always has to be up in his face and be a terrible person. Which is true to every character Nick Kroll has pretty much ever played. It's kind of the only character he's known for. And so after he loses his entire team... Uh, his girlfriend, played by Tiffany Haddish, dumps him, and he is kind of left to pick up the pieces when he meets Uncle Drew, who schools about who schools a couple of streetball pl- uh, players who are getting cocky and, and playing bad b-ball, and he and he easily trounces one after making it look like he was old and feeble. And so Lil Rel decides, hey, I can win with you. I just need more players. And then Uncle Drew's like, well, okay, I, I, I can finally because apparently they the team had never, um, never officially won the Rucker Classic, which is the term for the bat, for this streetball tournament. No idea what that's uh, in reference to. Thankfully, it's not the Ruckus Classic because that would be really oof. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that wouldn't be too um, too appealing in hindsight if you know anything about the Boondocks. Um, but Uncle Drew decides, okay, I'll 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 play for you, but it's got to be my roster. And he gets together his old team, played by Shaquille O'Neal, Chris Reber, uh Richie Miller, and Nate Robinson. And along and and um, Chris Reber's wife, played by WNBA player Lisa Leslie. Uh, also follows them as they go cross country to get them all back together and try to uh, reform the team that was so famous back in the day. And and along the way, when they go to pick up Nate Robinson's character, they meet his granddaughter, played by Mad TV alum. I came to realize Erica Ash. She's a comedian known for Scary Movie. F- Ooh, Scary Movie Five. That's that's a thing. Uh, She's been on. She was recently on In Contempt, 
No idea what that is. Survivor's Remorse. Real Husbands of Hollywood. Oh, sweet. She was on that uh, Kevin Hart series. Uh, I think, wait, is she Kevin Hart's, like, fake wife in that series? Yeah, she's Kevin Hart's fake wife in that series. With, like, J.B. Uh, JB Smooth's in there, too. Yeah, that's the, that's the crazy thing. Um, this this movie kind of feels like Lil Rel was meant to be Kevin Hart, but they couldn't actually get Kevin Hart, so they settled for Lil Rel. That, that's how a lot of it plays. But for the most part, they managed to do all right. Um, the basketball players do okay. Kyrie is the least interesting. He's not, he is, like, compared to LeBron and Trainwreck, Kyrie just cannot compete. He's not that great of an actor. Shaquille O'Neal is funny. He has enough charisma to be funny. Uh, Chris Webber is actually playing a role. He's playing a character. He is the one doing the most. Meanwhile, Reggie Miller is probably the second best in terms of actually trying to play a character. And then Nate Robinson is exists. His character is so... It's, his character is almost forgotten for most of the movie. And then Lisa Leslie is a l- hell of a lot of fun as Weber's wife. Uh, Weber, who, who's literal, whose name is Preacher, and actually went on to become like a Baptist minister. Uh, I think Baptist. And like they open them when they they introduce him and in a tub of water, spinning the baby around like it's basketball before he dunks it for a baptism. <laughs> um, but yes, Reggie uh, Reggie Miller is good. Uh, Chris Webber is is probably my favorite of the basketball players, and then Lisa Leslie has a lot of fun though she's not in it a lot. Um, it does also feature Mike Epps and JB Smoove. JB Smoove in the weakest cotton ball make old age makeup you've ever seen and Mike Epps just with charcoal in his beard to make him look older <laughs> or like you know like used up charcoal is all in his beard to make him try to try and make him look older this is not uh the best movie uh at the same time I did. I had a lot of laughs. I laughed out loud a lot in, up at a po- at points in this movie. I groaned plenty of times. A lot of that stuff was from the trailer, though, and a lot of it dealt with Nick Kroll's character. I just do not like this guy. Not as a person. I have no idea how he is personally. Every. I don't think I've seen a single Nick Kroll role character that I've liked. Didn't like him in Sing. He was. He was. I haven't seen the League. Hated him in Sausage Party. Uh, don't like Big Mouth. That he was a co-creator on that. Um, apparently, oh god, he's oh no, he's going to be Uncle Fester. Uh, maybe that'll work. Uncle Fester's kind of the weirdo uncle. Maybe that'll work. Ugh. He was okay. I guess he was okay as Captain as Professor Poopy Pants and Captain Underpants. I uh, don't remember him in, Ca- in Comedy Bang Bang. Um, uh, Zoolander supermodel TV movie. No idea what that is. Um, never saw the league. Don't remember him in vacation. Never liked the Kroll show. Um, don't remember. He's just the douche in Parks and Rec. I don't remember. But yeah, like that's the whole character. He is a douchey character. He's just always playing douchebags. And I've n- I don't think I've ever liked him in anything. Never saw Children's Hospital. Can't speak to that. He was apparently a word girl. So that's interesting. Um, yeah, it... 
Oh, God, like there's something on his IMDb called Ed Hardy Boys. Yeah. Yeah, this... He is... I don't think... He's only had, like, really one hit, and that's because I think he was limited in his improv. I think he's a terrible improv comic. I think his instincts are awful when it comes to improv. Whereas in the case of... um, Professor Poopy Pants, he had, his dialogue was mostly written for him. So all I had to do was play a role. And here he is much more of an improv character. He is always just... It's the same problem you have with a lot of modern comedy. They improv the dialogue instead of just fine-tuning it, writing it all out. They just say, oh, we'll just make it up as we go. And that shows in the final product. And we see that. Even the, even the story beats feel like this could have easily been a blues brothers style getting the band back together's cut type of movie and yet it ultimately doesn't live it, it ultimately falters because of a lot of the staples of modern comedy like there's a whole sequence where they're in a club for no real reason other than so they can do the old school with the new school and so that these old geezers who are actually just you know middle-aged men in makeup except for Kyrie Irving who is a young man in makeup can all can still bust a move and it's so dumb and yet I didn't hate it it's dumb it's it's so it's so poorly put together, but damn it if they didn't endear me in a lot of places. And like the story beats are are hacky. They're hacky and they're tug at your heart string start string sort of sort of moments that they're trying to it almost feel like a parody of sports movies, which I think is what they were going for, but it ultimately doesn't really work out. Really, I think some of the funniest moments just come from some of the banter. And I think the uh, other basketball players, besides Kyrie, kind of bring that up. Uh, Lil Rel has some good moments. Erica Ash is just there to be the love interest for no other. That's all she does in the movie, and it sucks. Like, there's a point where it looks like she and Tiffany Haddish are going to have a fight. But it doesn't go anywhere beyond that. And even Tiffany Haddish is just kind of left to be the... Sort of gold digger chick. Like she's only there because she thinks Lil Rel's going to pay back uh, when when he wins the competition. And when he when he when that falls through, she gives up on him. And then she hooks up with Nick Kroll so that they can be obnoxious together. And Tiffany Haddish deserves way better. She can be way more interesting, but she's just kind of reduced to this stereotypical character in this movie, and it sucks. So, that's the thing. J.B. Smoove and Mike Epps, they're, they act like they're, they're, they're supposed to be important characters in, 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 in teaching and telling the, the legend of Uncle Drew. But they're, they're cameos. They're glorified cameos in this movie. They only appear in two scenes. And it ultimately is just kind of... It's, it's, almost, it's, it's like seeing a really earnest... Um, high school production. It's it it on. It's not competent enough to be good, but damn it, if you aren't endeared by them trying, and there are some genuine good moments. So, like I said, Uncle Drew has is better than it has any right to be. It's not great, but you'll probably find something to, to laugh at, either intentionally or unintentionally. <laughs> 
Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Alright. We have two Netflix and chat entries this week, this uh, episode, because I was able, since there were only two releases coming out in theaters, and I was going to be out of town for uh, most of the weekend, I uh, as, as as of this recording, I had recently returned from Chicago to see Double Toasted Live, which was a hell of a lot of fun. Got to run into Brad Jones uh, at the end, and uh, even though I was only able to just say hi in passing because he was on his way out, it was fun. Uh, I had a hell of a hell of a good time. Corey and Martin are just the best, and the live show was excellent. And I'm glad I, I'm glad I took my nephew to it. He and I both laughed our asses off. Um, so in lieu of that, in lieu of seeing anything else, I watched a couple of movies at home, um, the aforementioned Sicario, but I also, uh, in wanting to see what exactly the dinosaurs were in Allegro Non Troppo, which I mentioned as a movie that featured dinosaurs, I was able to find it without English subtitles. So it doesn't really have an official uh, North American release, let's say. So I, but I was able to find it and watch it uh, complete with the live-action sequences, because there are two versions. One with just the animated sequences, one like with Fantasia that featured live-action interludes. And the interludes are kind of my least favorite part of it. It's trying way too hard to be, to be schlocky funny. Like, it opens up as a full-on parody of the opening of Fantasia, even going so far as to, like, hey, who's this Bisney? guy who has never been done before and it's like trying to be it's it may have worked um in italian but from what i can tell it's just it's the farcical elements are the parts i don't like like the whole bit of the orchestra's old old women all one of the interludes is just serving soup for lunch or like a stew from a pot like some guy just rolls in a big pot of stew and it serves it to the orchestra. Um, there's a bit where a gorilla from one of the sequences... That, that was the most interesting. That parts from the musical animated segments would come and interact with the interlude. That part's interesting. There's, like... I think the, mo- the most clever joke in the interludes is they bring in the animator out from a dungeon and say, like, he's working for exposure. He's the artist. And that part, yeah, that's kind of like... Okay, yeah, that's yeah, that that hits home with a lot of people in the field. That yeah, I get that. Um, but otherwise, it's just so over the top, trying to be fun, trying to be body and campy, and I just couldn't get into it. I just think it's. I just think the fact that they could, they didn't need to go that big. I feel like. I feel like if they wanted to be a parody, there's a smarter way of parodying this this whole thing. Like, even the Fantasia 2000 is almost a parody of, with the interludes of the first Fantasia. The idea that they would bring in more comedians and celebrities to be funny. Like, the whole bit where they reintroduced uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice by having Penn Jillette and, uh, I forget Teller's name, but Penn and Teller talk about magic and do magic tricks. And then Steve Martin kind of goof around uh, on the fiddle, on a, on a violin uh, before um, whatever segment that was. 
it's uh, so I mean like it that almost works as a better parody than this movie does. But I could see I could still see a Fantasia parody working. It just didn't work for me here. As for the animated portions, it's it feels it feels like they don't get how it works because even the Fantasia two thousand um, animated segments worked for what the stories they wanted to tell, like Brave Tin Soldier for whatever that piece was, or the Pines of Rome was turned into flying whales. It was interesting, and all the the animated the animation played off of the music. Um, perfect example of how this movie falters. The Bolero segment, which is, serves as the inspiration for the poster of the Coke bottle and the monsters marching in the background. That whole segment features, the, features music from Bolero, and it's a parody of um, the Rite of Spring March. And, it, and it's li- like literally the march from the end of the Rite of Spring. It completely, it it feels, it wants to try and do the evolution thing again. This time it's saying it's a sugary, syrupy bit of coke left behind by astronauts evolving into the life forms on this planet. But it doesn't say anything about like maybe the nature of life or what would actually happen if coke evolved into sentient life forms. It doesn't really do much of anything in that uh, that regard. It's just kind of like, hey, the dinosaurs were all marching at the ver- at the end of Rite of Spring. Let's just do that for the entire segment. It's literally just them marching. Ultimately to what? I guess just civilization, but it doesn't do anything. It doesn't comment on anything. It's just, oh hey, we Rite of Spring talked about evolution and they featured dinosaurs marching. Let's do that. And that ultimately was the reference to dinosaurs. That's it. Just dinosaur-like creatures marching. And it's... it. I don't get how that's a dinosaur movie. So Wikipedia is weird. I don't know how that came up. Um, other than that one, uh, like... They opened with Prelude of the after- for the Afternoon of a Fawn, which is... Which features openly, you know, uh, an old satyr chasing after nude women. And as he continually fails to woo them, he gets smaller and older. And it's kind of misogynistic and douchey in retrospect. And I get that. I feel like that's a thing in a lot of, especially 70s Italian comedy. It's just that kind of open misogyny even though even though it's feel even though it's like oh the downtrodden man he gets always gets turned down but oh but the women are always you know their ideal version of of attractive and it's and there was no need for the women to all be naked you could have just had them running around in togas and it would have been it would have been service just fine it was obvious it was only there to be like hey look we're drawing naked ladies yeah uh it's so stupid and then that is followed up by a seemingly clever piece about uh, cavemen, a, a single caveman going off to try and do his own thing, only to be followed by his fellow cavemen in perpetuity until it leads to like a single punchline. And even that segment is kind of like it's it's a long setup to a mediocre punchline. So 
it it doesn't so it's it's kind of sad um there's a one really good segment which is Valsa Triste by uh Sibelius and and for that they make it set in like the ruins of a destroyed city and features a cat walking around remembering what it was like when humans used to live there and it's a touching and tragic little piece about this cat in this seemingly post-apocalyptic or ruined city, however the setup was that led him to that. But it's a really touching segment, and it's probably the best. It could easily compete for, like, something from an actual Disney Fantasia production. And that's the best they could do, because they follow that up with a Vivaldi piece set to where it's a... Little girl, little woman bee, little female bee in a skirt and whatnot, uh, trying to eat from a flower by doing this meticulous setting up, only to be undone by a pair of, you know, giant human, a giant human couple coming in and flirting while she's trying to eat and continually messing up her eating. And in, and in retaliation for ruining her lunch, she stings the guy. It's, it's not a very good segment. And the whole thing ends with the Firebird Suite, which was featured in Fantasia 2000 as well. But here, it's about... It's a retelling of The Temptation of Eve, Adam and Eve, where a, the snake from the Garden of Eden tempts Adam and Eve with the apple, only they both turn him down, and he ends up eating it. And in doing so, he is he invites all these demons... To show him the future and show him all of the vices of mankind to come from this tree of not by eating from the tree of knowledge and eat, eat and it'll go so far as to even give him arms and legs and a business suit and it's it completely misses the point of the whole ballet like compared to um, the Fantasia 2000 version which features like a little nymph who is. Um, running around, uh, bringing greenery to life, and to, until she reaches the foot of Mount Saint Helens, or and technically just a volcano, but it's based mainly on Mount Saint Helens, and her powers don't work, and she uh, inadvertently wakes up a phoenix from the in, from inside the volcano, which destroys all the greenery around her, and it's up to her elk friend. To kind of wake her up from this tragedy and and allow her to bring greenery back to this area, and that's it. And that perfectly utilizes all of the music, all the musical elements of the of the ballet to it to its benefit. Here, it's two segments from the ballet, um, about the same as uh, the Fantasia Two Thousand. The first two segments where it's just the intro bit and then the actual like bit where the firebird attacks those are the two segments featured here and it's simply just the snake tempting even adam and then as soon as it eats it's the bum 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 and then but none of it has is timed to the music not all of it's kind of just randomly chaotic and so it's like Oh, I don't know. Let's just throw in wacky stuff. And it, whatever try to kind of commentary they were going for didn't work. And 
And that's the other thing. The animation here is 70s era, like almost R. Crumb or Bakshi style, like nasty. Like imagine if those old 70s Sesame Street animations were made by pervy adults. That's kind of what we're going for. That's kind of what we get here. And it's, it's fine. I don't get the appeal, though. Like, there are people calling this, like, one of the best things that... One of the best movies they've ever seen in terms of, like, I don't know, comedy, musical? I don't know what, but this can't even compare to Fantasia 2000 in my book. It ultimately misses the point. It's not bad. It's kind of icky in retrospect, and it doesn't hold up. But there's a be- there's a way to parody Fantasia, and this movie failed to do it. So, that's all I'll say about that. This uh, other one, though, I watched as a special for Patreon. That's right. I added new stuff to the Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash popcornjunkie you can, and you donate at least a dollar a month, you can, you can have access to two new entries in Make a Better Movie and uh, Munch Along. For Make a Better Movie, I rewatched Jurassic World. I I guess I can t- kind of talk about that after this. Um, but for the much long, I did Jurassic Park 3. So, let's talk about let's talk about these. Um, Jurassic Park 3. Check out the much long on Patreon, support the podcast in that way. I'm planning to do two of these every week. Well, one of each episode a week. So, um I'll I'll announce at the end of the episode what I'm look, what I'm planning to do for this coming weekend, um, but yeah, Jurassic Park three. This is the first Jurassic Park movie not to be officially directed by Spielberg. This is directed by future Captain America, first Avenger director and former Rocketeer director Joe Johnston. He took over from Spielberg, who had wanted to kind of move on from the series, especially after kind of the lukewarm critical response from The Lost World, and. It's also the shortest. It's only 90 minutes long, whereas every other entry is over two hours. So it's the shortest of the Jurassic Park movies, and it's also kind of the de facto worst in a lot of people's minds. And I can kind of see why. I mean, the main thing is there were some weird uh, redesigns for the dinosaurs. This is supposed to be Isla Sorna, which we had just seen four years prior in 1997 with the Lost World. They look pretty much exactly like in Jurassic Park. For the for this movie, they redesigned the raptors, which I'm okay with. I actually like that redesign. But they also redesigned the Brachiosaurus to have a red crest for some reason. Uh, they redes- The T-Rex is pretty much the same as from the Lost World. And I think those are the big ones. Um, those are the kind of real major redesigns. I think... Stegosaurus got a bit of a redesign. Uh, Parasaurolophus and Corythosaurus. Well, Corythosaurus was added. But Parasaurolophus kind of got a bit of a redesign. It felt weird and ultimately unnecessary. Like, you couldn't have just used the same... Wouldn't have been easier to use the, the models from the last movie? Why did it need redesigns? I mean, the raptors, I get. You wanted to include some of the feather aspects, although they didn't really add too much feathering. It was only a single mohawk on the males. Which ultimately doesn't add anything, but I kind of like it. More, if you included more feathers, that would have been even better. Um, yeah, the, the, otherwise the, the redesigns are completely unnecessary. Don't add anything to the movie. In fact, one of the dumb, I'll talk about one of the dumbest moments 
later. But um, the main thing this is infamous for, and you see this even in Nostalgia Critics' review of it, is the whole Spinosaurus T-Rex fight. You spent two movies building up the T-Rexes. People loved them. And here, in order to try and prove, hey, we got a bigger, better, badder dinosaur, it kills the T-Rex and ultimately kind of ruins it for the people. Like, you can't just kill the T-Rex. T-Rex is the best. Who's this, Who's this new asshole? It's like um, it's like when Pro Jared reviewed uh, X-Men, uh, Mega Man X7. Um, and it introduced Axel. The character there, and the movie, and the game starts with you playing as Axel. But it's like, you're called Mega Man X, not Axel. Not Mega Man Axel, not, not anything like that. You are Mega Man X, but you can't play as Mega Man. So that's kind of, I get that, uh, I get that mentality of like, you can't just kill T-Rex. T-Rex is part of this franchise. And they wanted to try something new. And I, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with trying something new, replacing the T-Rex with the Spinosaurus. Spinosaurus is pretty cool, ultimately. I kind of like Spinosaurus. But, yeah, I, I get why. I feel like that fight should have happened later in the movie. I feel like opening with it killing T-Rex is kind of almost... Um, it's kind of what also makes it infamous. The fact that it opens with... Oh, not only are we opening it with the T with it killing T Rex, we're tying into uh, accepted paleontology at the time, which said T Rex was actually kind of a predator or kind of a scavenger because it couldn't have hunted its own food. I mean, look at its tiny arms. But we've kind of come to the realization that it's both. It's a it's easily a a, a predator, and it would also scavenge because there was no reason for it not to be. I mean, the, they it couldn't have lived off of just scavenged food alone. There was no way for that, but I feel like the mentality at the time was in act. I remember this at the time too, that in paleontology that they were trying to determine T. Rex's eating habits, and they determined and they thought that they theorized that it would ultimately have to scavenge it for its food because it couldn't have competed with other dinosaurs at the time, other other predators of its kind like Allosaurus and that whole line, and the T. Rexes with their tiny arms. What can they do? But I feel like the arms were kind of useless. They wouldn't have needed bigger arms. They most of the most of the muscle went into the head. The arms were superfluous, and that's kind of the accepted accepted theory now that T Rex would have been a predator, but it also you know could have easily scavenged off of other dinosaurs. And in fact, uh, there is a theory that T Rex back T because T Rexes would scavenge off of de- decaying meat that they would actually get. Um, infected like like to- uh, chemical warfare style but uh teeth bacteria that when they bite into a living dinosaur would infect them and that's an interesting theory but i don't know how much it would work like the idea that oh they can only take a single bite and then they have to wait for that the other dinosaur to die from disease Cool idea, but I don't know how well it would work logically. So I feel like it was it was a theory trying to explain something that didn't need explaining, and it ultimately worked to this movie's detriment. That's why I feel like having T Rex be like be like the opposing force of the Spinosaurus. Maybe the T Rex loses to the Spinosaurus halfway through the movie, 
But the T having it kill the T Rex up front is definitely jarring, and it turned a lot of people away. Um, other than that, like Macy, uh, William H Macy and Taylor Leone are, are aren't great, but they do kind of capture this idea of what a dysfun- how a dysfunctional couple acts, and uh, and the whole thing with um uh. Dr. Grant's associate and assistant, Billy, stealing the dinosaur eggs was really mishandled. Like, immediately, as soon as, as soon as he disappears and reappears, you know he's stealing the eggs. You know he's shady. And it's terribly mishandled. I feel like a better writer would have known how to handle Billy. Like, it wouldn't have been Billy hinting that, hey, I stole the eggs. I stole the eggs. Hey, guess what? I stole the eggs. It would have been more Dr. Grant discovers Billy stole the eggs, and that's when he confronts Billy. And Billy has to be like, that's when Billy confesses. Not, give me the bag, Alan. It's totally not hiding anything secret, Alan. Just give me my bag, Alan. It's really hackneyed. I will say the best part of the movie is Sam Neill as old man, Dr. Grant, where he's just like, oh, I don't care anymore. Whatever, man. Calls people out on their on their crap. <laughs> I like him. I really do like Sam Neill. He's the, he's the best thing about this movie. And the other problem with this movie? Not enough Laura Dern. Not sure if she was busy filming at the time. She could only do two scenes. But there needed to be more Laura Dern. Also, kind of taking away the whole idea of her and Alan not hooking up after the last movie. That does feel weird. Um, I'm okay with it, ultimately, but it does feel like... I feel like it would have been cooler if Laura did decide to join them on the adventure. I think that would be more interesting, and then we could explain... And then we could explain why they didn't end up together. Like, she wanted kids. He didn't. That, you know, that sort of thing. And then, you know, rekindle their friendship after all these years. That would be interesting. And, um, that, I don't know. I feel like, yeah, this movie had a distinct lack of Laura Dern, and that's to its detriment. Because Laura Dern is amazing. So, yeah. Overall, I can see why a lot of people didn't like this movie, and they think it's the worst of the Jurassic Park movies. Uh, you know, you know my feelings on this. But, I think it, I don't think it's as bad. I just know that it, it's not great either. I haven't revisited Lost World, so I can't speak to how bad that one is. I know it's got a lot of bad moments as well. And a lot of those moments also tie into Fallen Kingdom, which I've mentioned. Um, I never got the chance to talk about uh, Jurassic World on the podcast, I don't think. Um, I don't think I talked about it in the lead-up to Fallen Kingdom either. So, in case I didn't, um, quick recap. Jurassic World has good intentions. Uh, I talk about this more and make a better movie. But basically... It has a lot of problems, and a lot of that all seems to stem from Trevorrow because those problems that I pointed out carry over into Falling Kingdom. I feel like Trevorrow and Derek Connolly, his writing partner, just are not capable of writing coherent human interaction. They just are not good at it. So, it's it's fine. It's a solid reprise of the first movie. First movie is still the best. Uh, Jurassic World is a solid follow-up to it, but, like, there's a lot of issues with it. Ty Simpkins is too old to play the kind of character he's playing. There's a lot of misogyny, even aside from Owen Grady's role. The weaponized dinosaurs thing is st- is still stupid and continues to be stupid. 
there's a just a, there's a lot of ways to fix it, and I bring them up in my Make a Better Movie over on Patreon, exclusive to supporters of the podcast. So go check it out. Um, I think that about does it. So let's take a quick break and come back for a discussion about commercials and the movies. Not trailers, like literal ad campaigns and narrative filmmaking. Into every generation, a slayer is born. One girl in all the world, a chosen one. And alongside her are the Watchers. We are the Watchers. Once more with Feeling is a 20th anniversary Buffy fan cast where we gather and watch episodes of Buffy, discuss them, and release it every Tuesday. Grr. Arg. Drew in theaters, it's time to talk about commercials that got turned into movies. But I could talk about TV shows as well, but since I'm not really into the TV portion of it, uh, of filmmaking, that I decided I'll decide to leave that for somebody else. But, but yeah, you know, the most infamous of these sorts of, of this sort of thing is the Geico Cavemen getting their own sitcom that failed miserably. And as for movies, it's a lot older than you would think. Most people will probably look back to the 80s as sort of commercials made into movies. But the oldest that I found was actually Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. True story. Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer was this jingle coined up to sell a coloring book. It was a Christmas-themed coloring book, and they made up the character of Rudolph to sell it. And they made the song about it. Which led to the Rankin-Bass movies. So technically, that is the oldest form of that I could find of a commercial that was adapted to feature film. There may have been earlier ones that I didn't recognize. I know there was a postcard that got adapted into a movie by like Edison in the early days of filmmaking. But advertising and, and, and the idea that a commercial used to try to tell a narrative started as far as i can tell with rudolph which led us into the 70s that was 1964 1978 i believe well 1976 we saw um i don't know if it was 75 or 74 when this first started but the uh there's a bread company an advertising executive played a trucker named C.W. McCall. Now, you may, if you're a music aficionado, you may also know C.W. McCall as the singer of one of the most infamous schlock songs of the 70s, Convoy. Uh, yeah, an advertising executive in Dallas. Uh, oh, no, no, wait. Dallas Finlay, Dallas actor Jim Finlayson. But... He, uh, the Mets Baking Company and Old Home Bread created, uh, um, William Free, William Freeze initially created the character of C.W. McCall for these bread, for this bread commercial, to sell bread. 
And at some point he got it so he got so up in his own head about it that he not only changed his name to C.W. McCall, but he also wrote trucker themed country songs as C.W. McCall. One of the, his most famous of which is Convoy based on the CB radio fad at the time. And that song, which was born out of a character used to sell bread, was turned into a movie called Convoy by, of all people, Sam Peckinpah. Sam Peckinpah, you might remember, as the director of Straw Dogs. Pat Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia, Cross of Iron, Major Dundee, Junior Bonner, The Wild Bunch, The Killer Elite, The Osterman Weekend. Don't know that one. Um, uh, Riot in Selbach 11 is an older one of his. Uh, but that's as an as produ- production assistant. As director, goes the um, he well, he helped write The Glory Guys, The Wild Bunch, Straw Dogs, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, The Killer Elite, Cross of Iron... Uh, last one being the Osterman Weekend. So Sam Peckinpah is one of those old 70s era directors. And he directed the movie based on the song Convoy. Now it didn't have, I don't think, CW in it. Uh, unless it was a minor character. Um, now nah, it doesn't look like he's in it. But it's still based on the... Based on the song that was that came from a character created to sell bread, so that was kind of that was kind of the real um, for the, the the biggest one since Rudolph came out, and and by the eighties it, it got in the full swing. First, do you remember that um, uh, Super Bowl ad? I think it was a Super Bowl ad. It may it may have been just a regular ad. Featuring Mean Joe Green and the Coke. Hey, Mean Joe, you want a drink of my Coke? Thanks, kid. They turned that commercial into a TV movie. True story. Look up The Steeler and the Pittsburgh Kid. True story. In fact, I need to look up the plot of this, of this insanity. The movie based on the Coca-Cola commercial staring mean thanks IMDb. That's beautiful. Both places it's misspelled. That's how little people cared about this. But yeah, Joe Green plays himself and the kid plays himself. And apparently it's an entire storyline about mean Joe Green and this kid. Hold on, I need to find... The, what the plot of this movie is. This is insane. Overview from Turner Classic Movies. Based on an award-winning Coca-Cola commercial, the program retail, relates the story of a nine-year-old boy who learns about values, discipline, and relationships when he's temporarily adopted. Adopted?! Biden football star Mean Joe Green, along with the other members of his team, the Pittsburgh Steelers. The men, in turn, are affected and inspired by the boys' love of football. A strange, sad, bittersweet tale of 
bitterness and sweetness and the power of love. This is absolutely insane and I have to find it. This thing exists. It was created from a Coke commercial of all things. Oy. But, uh, but yeah, when you think of 80s commercials being made into movies, you're not thinking of Mean, of mean Joe Green and the Pittsburgh Kid. No, you're thinking of things like Hasbro and Mattel. You're thinking of Transformers the movie, G.I. Joe the movie, My Little Pony the movie. All of these toy lines that mainly went to TV, but, but some were big enough to make it to the big screen. And these... And these continue to this day with Mattel and Hasbro owning their own production companies to make movies in order to sell toys. That was, that was probably the biggest instance of this entire phenomenon. But people don't think about it because it's not a toy commercial. It's a narrative story. To, at least, you know, if you're, in, if you're engaged in the premise that they present. Another 80s icon you may remember is, uh, what was his last name? I know, you know him as Ernest. As in Ernest Goes to Camp, Ernest Scared Stupid, Ernest Goes to Jail, Ernest Saves Christmas, and Dr. Dr. Otto and the Riddle of the Gloom Beam. Okay. But yeah, Jim Varney as a character, Ernest P. Worrell. Little did you know, that was a concoction by an advertising agency based out of Nashville to create a fictional character in order to sell products. He was most famous for selling things like Coke, checks, and even Taco John's. Eventually, he appeared uh, with the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders and, and, um, and eventually... Found, wound up with his own TV show, Hey Vern, It's Ernest. And it, that led into an entire series of movies. And apparently a family, it's my fam, Hey Vern, It's My Family album. But yeah, the Ernest, uh, goes, Ernest goes to camp, saves Christmas, goes to jail, scared stupid, rides again, goes to school, slam dunk Ernest, Ernest goes to Africa, and Ernest in the army, which was, I believe, one of the last ones before his death in 2000. So, yeah, Ernest is one of, is, in, it's insane to think about, but that Ernest character that you thought was just created for the movies or something... He was created as a as an as a spokes character. He's a he's a fictional character used to sell products, and he managed to get so popular that they made an entire universe around him. It's it's bananas to think about in hindsight. The other one to think about that's bananas that I never realized: Johnny English. Johnny English is actually a character created for the. British banking company Barclay Card, Bark B A R C L A Y C A R D Barclay Card, what created the character of Johnny English to sell bank? I guess their banking services or something, and that led into soon to be three movies starring Rowan Atkinson. So there's going to be I'm going to have to catch up on all of the Johnny English movies, 
and they were they were built out of a commercial mascot, a, a an ad campaign character, and it's and it's crazy. Like I just assumed it was a spy parody, which maybe it was in the commercials, but yeah. For those of us across the pond that never saw knew about this bank, Johnny English is a commercial spokesman for a British bank. At least until he got his own movie series. So, yeah, we're going to return to that later this year if that thing comes through. They may push it back to January, which would be fitting. And I think that's all of them. Now, there aren't any other really popular and beloved uh, commercial-based movies out there, uh, especially not ones starring basketball players that um, I probably shouldn't be on mic, you know, tearing apart. Wait, I think I did already. Crap! Damn it! <sighs> yeah. Uh, 2016, if, if you've been a long-time listener, I did actually review the 20th anniversary of Space Jam. And no, it it, it it doesn't hold up. It's not a good Looney Tunes uh, iteration. None of the Looney Tunes, most of the Looney Tunes characters are completely out of character. And the addition of Lola Bunny is was only redeemed by her uh, re redesign and re personalization. Um, you know her re her re her new iteration in the Looney Tunes show uh, last decade or earlier this decade i forget when it was on but yeah that sitcom-y um looney tunes show that cartoon network made that they they redeemed lola bunny by giving her a personality here she's just a sex pot to entice bugs bunny why she even needed to be sexy is just creepy and unsettling and says a lot about the warner brothers executives maybe they wanted to create furries Ugh. um but yeah, the the addition of Lola Bunny is especially the way she's treated in the movie is deaf is so misogynistic and, and terrible in hindsight. Michael Jordan is sleepwalking through most of it. It's it's all it's only charming in the sense that it's stupid and it caters to the you know the, the how you would feel as a child. It works great for children because you don't have to think about it. And if you do think about it, it's all—it's just utter garbage. And yeah, this this movie is not great. It's the only reason to like it is if you grew up with it. I can't imagine kids nowadays being that into Space Jam, especially enough to make a sequel. I highly doubt kids today will get. I don't know. I don't know what kids are into today. Maybe they are into Space Jam for all I know. Maybe the sequel will really speak to them. But yeah, Space Jam is the most infamous of the commercials to be turned because that was a Nike commercial starring Bugs Bunny and Michael Jordan, and yeah, that it, it, they they really missed the ball on on um, on trying to adapt that into a feature length film. It's just all kinds of problems associated with it. It's it's pretty bad, but. You know, I can't speak to if you like it or not. I can't tell you not to like it because you can never choose what you like. You just like what you like. So, yeah.
I think that about covers it. Um, the only other thing I want to mention is this, because I'm I'm of the mindset that you can make anything good. Anything is possible if you have the right mentality behind it to allow for something good to come from from your creativity. So in that mindset, is it wrong to turn commercials into movies? I think morally, in the in the sense that, uh, well, not morally, artistically, artistically speaking, it's wrong. You should not rely on corporatism and capitalism to dictate what stories to tell. However, that is the industry as it works. That's how the industry works, and. There have been movies that worked for people that came from the idea of selling something, i.e. Space Jam worked and is still beloved by a lot of 90s kids, and the Ernest films were beloved by a lot of 80s kids. Gen Xers probably loved the Ernest movies and never thought about if they were good or bad. They just enjoyed them for what they were. The 80s toy commercials, people still love Transformers and G.A. Joe. More people have gotten into My Little Pony enough for them to make another movie. For out, out of the franchise, all to sell little, uh, all to sell toys. So to say that it's you shouldn't is limited. You should never limit yourself creatively. And if anything, the 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 best one to come out of out of this whole concept, the Lego Movie. How can I forget the Lego movie? That's the best one. Yeah, the Lego movie. Best example of how to take a commercial and make a decent, well-told story out of it. This is why I say nothing is impossible. You should never limit yourself creatively. You should always allow yourself the ability to make something creative, even if it's out of the most shameless commercialism out there. You should never be limited in your creativity because you may end up with a Space Jam which works at the time and some people still hold on to it dearly but but objectively is bad. Uh, or you may end up with something really hacky and terrible. Uh, like, um, that I, like I'm assuming that Steeler and the Pittsburgh Kid uh, movie is. Or you may end up with something like the Lego movie. The Lego movie is it in and of itself a commercial for Le- for the Lego company to sell Legos. And yet it talks about creativity, growing up, allowing your you know, allowing your children to play the way they want to play versus um stick, sticking to st- sticking to a strict uh order of things. It's a meta commentary on you know, on the storytelling process. It's oh, just a phenomenal kids movie and 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 a perfect example of how this sort of thing can work and that's the idea is that you should aim to make it work it's just that a lot of people take the easy route and just crap whatever they want out of the thing that's why uncle drew doesn't work as well because it's not trying too hard because it's because it's ultimately there as a part of a pepsi campaign not to say they didn't not to say that they didn't have fun or that they didn't enjoy themselves, but it wasn't about being a good movie. It was about perpetuating this character. 
Whereas the Lego movie wanted to be creative and interesting. It was about creativity in and of itself. And that is why it works. Because the guys behind it, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, know how to tell these kinds of stories. They have proven. You can adapt a picture book for kids. A cheesy 80s television series. And even a a, a 90 minute long commercial for a toy and make something amazing out of it. I'm really curious how their uh, solo would have turned out. I just wish Disney would have stuck to their guns and just let them let them have at it. Maybe it may have done even better than they've done way better than it than it did. But all hindsight is uh, 2020, and you can never tell what would have happened if they did something. You can never tell that. So yeah, uh, once again, commercials as movie, movies as commercials for something, you have to be really creative to make it work. Otherwise, you can do good, but you'll uh, there's only I like I said the only great example is the Lego Movie. Space Jam is fine, but the Lego Movie is genuinely good and is a Great kids film, great family film, overall good film. What am I, it was my top three favorite movie to come out that year. The only two movies I liked more than the Lego movie that year were Selma and Winter Soldier. So, yeah, I, I'm really sad 2014 and 15 didn't get documented by me at some point. Like, I, I still have the 2012 and 2013 stuff down, and then I started with 2016 and 2017. So, but the years, but 2014 and 2015, in terms of film criticism, reviewing my thoughts on things, are kind of lost to the ether. So, it'll have to come up on a on a case by case basis. Like, I'm gonna bring, I'm gonna have to bring up Lego Movie again when the sequel comes out next year, which I'm I'm interested in. I don't know how well it's gonna do it. They seem to recapture Lord of Miller's style, even though it's not the same people. The animation seems to have stayed consistent, which is great. But we'll have to wait and see how it turned out. Uh, and once again, commercials as movie movies as commercials for a product, it definitely feels artistically uh, void. But once again, creativity lies in everything. And if you are creative enough, you can make anything work. Lord and Miller have proven that time and again. So that's all it. That's all I got to say. Uh, with that in mind, let's take uh, a look at. The, this week's box office report. And now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. This weekend's box office is actually pretty interesting now that I look at it. Um, Guardian American Animals dropped way down this weekend. And Won't You Be My Neighbor actually managed to stay in the top ten. But as we look at the top, uh, but as we look at the top seven, uh, Solo dropped out. Uh, is now down to number nine. But just out of the top seven is an Indian film, an Indian biographical movie about an Indian actor named Sanjay Dutt. Uh, Dutt? Maybe Dutt. Uh, uh, The movie's name is Sanju. Uh, I'm assuming Sanjay Dutt, uh, Bollywood actor uh, from back back in, like, I'm guessing the 70s. Uh, and it's a movie about his life and 
Apparently, it managed to ma- managed to break into the top ten in America. With uh, granted, it's only it only made two and a half million dollars, but that's still something. That's still that means that means an independent foreign film broken the broken America's top ten. That's that's interesting. That's something you don't see every day. Uh, and it actually and it actually did better than Solo in what Solo's sixth week. Yeah, so a Star Wars, it's doing better. It, it premiered better than a Star Wars movie in its sixth week. How, that's saying something about Solo. That more people wanted to see an, a Bollywood bio, biopic than, it, than Solo again. Um, but yeah, number seven, dropping down from number five, is Deadpool 2 with $3.4 million. Bringing its domestic total up to... Uh, 310 million and its world total up to 719. Like I said, this is all this film's already in the black. It's doing f- fantastic. And I genuinely hope now that Disney has has uh, landed the Fox rights that they don't screw with Deadpool. Just let Deadpool be Deadpool just now you can incorporate more of the MCU into the comedy. I think that would be fine. Uh dropping down from number 4 last week to number six is Tag, which brought in $5.6 million, bringing its domestic total to $40 million and its foreign total to, uh, and its global total to $48 million. So it's in the black now, but it's not doing too hot. So it's managed to, you know, limp along into, into, into making a profit, but it's not doing gangbusters or anything like that. Uh, number drop down from number three this week at, uh, to number five is Ocean's Eight, which brought in eight million dollars this weekend, bringing its domestic total to one hundred and fourteen and its worldwide total to two hundred nine, meaning it's still the f- lowest ranking of the Ocean's movies. And I and I feel like and once again I'm I'm still worried that that um, studios are going to take this as well female led movies just aren't going to make money and not. Oh, the Ocean's movie is tired and it doesn't and people aren't interested. So even though it's not even though it made a profit, it's not it's still it's still continuing the downward trend of this franchise. People just do not care. Uh meanwhile, number 4 is actually one of our new releases this weekend. Bringing in 15 and a half million dollars is Uncle Drew. Uh no word on its budget, though. So let's take a look at the wiki. See if they'll say estimated budget is between seventeen and nineteen million dollars, and it only br- and it's and it pr- and so it couldn't it only bear and, it, and it's just under making back its budget. So it may may manage to end up earning back its production value between between the budget. The most it would have to earn is thirty-eight million. Uh, the the least would be thirty-four million. So if it can do that, it can it it, it, it might do okay. But considering uh, July Fourth weekend is going to be coming down, and July Fourth is on a Wednesday, so it can't so it can't lead into the weekend. Um, I don't know how well this is going to do, especially since it's going to compete with 
new entries, the pur- the first Purge and Ant-Man and the Wasp of the Mar- a Marvel movie is about to come in, especially after the hype train of Infinity War. So I don't see Uncle Drew making back its profit, but we'll have to wait and see. Uh, just above Uncle Drew at number three is Sicario Day of the Soldado, which brought in $19 million. Uh, and combined with its foreign total, it, uh, the, the uh, global... Uh, opening weekend uh, 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 gross is $27.4 million on a production value of $35 million. So even globally, it couldn't make back its budget. We'll, and what, like I said, next weekend is going to, this week is going to lead into a Marvel movie after, the, after Infinity War and a Purge movie. So it's, I don't see either of these entries making back. If they couldn't make that back their money this weekend, I don't know if they have the staying power to make it, uh, make it back at all. So, but we'll see if they can limp along. Uh, next up, Incredibles 2, staying at number 2, with $45.5 million this weekend. It brings, up, brings its uh, three-week total to $439 million with a global gross of 646 it's um it's actually the highest grossing it it's it seems to have already outgrossed the first incredibles movie and is second highest grossing uh in all of pixar's history it's outgrossed domestically uh unadjusted for inflation it's outgrossed toy story 3 adjusted for inflation it's right behind toy story 3 um, even finding Dory, even though that was two years ago, uh, gets gets a boost from uh, from adjusting for inflation, which is insane. But the highest grossing Pixar movie so far, adjusted for inflation, is Finding Nemo, and Incredibles. But Incredibles two is in the top five, outgrossing Toy Story two. So Incredibles two is making bank, and people are loving it. So. Good on them. 14-year wait was worth it. I think we're good. Two movies is fine. I don't think we need to... I think we can continue this in like a comic book form, like I've mentioned. And then staying at number one for two weeks in a row is Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom with $60 million this weekend. Uh, so, bring it, which brings its domestic total up to $264 million and its global total almost to a billion dollars in two weekends. $932 million over, uh, in two weekends globally. So this movie made bank and is the third ranking out of the dress. So Jurassic World is still the highest grossing. Uh, Jurassic Park is the highest grossing adjusted for inflation. And Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom is right behind both of them. Uh, although adjusted for inflation, it still hasn't outgrossed Jurassic Park 3. Which is interesting to think about. Um, it's the highest grossing worldwide besides Jurassic Park. Uh, Jurassic World is still the highest grossing in the entire franchise. and But yeah, Dress, uh, Fallen Kingdom still needs, still, still needs another $30 million to outgross Jurassic Park 3 uh, if you adjust for inflation. And it still needs um, unadjusted... Another hundred million dollars domestically to outgross Jurassic Park, uh, uh, 
just and that just unadjusted for inflation. I don't see it at all outgrossing Jurassic World. I think Jurassic World was a lightning in a bottle sort of revamp. I think they're definitely going to have to rely on the foreign markets from now on, which is why I think Jurassic World sucks so much because it's not dealing with actual plot elements. It's dealing with imagery, which sells better in foreign markets. So I think that I think we can let, I think a lot of my issues do uh, will stem kind of stem from that sort of mentality. You see that a lot in the Resident Evil franchise as well. Just some blockbusters that are really stupid and awful to watch. That's why the Transformers movies did so well for in foreign markets because you didn't have to think about it and know English to watch enjoy it. It's just you can enjoy the imagery of it, and and I think it's almost better for that. So. Yeah, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, number one, two weeks in a row. and But it did see a drop uh, by over half since last week. Um, same with uh, Incredibles 2. It dropped uh, just about half uh, in their profit in the last week. But both of them were doing fine. So, so you know, what do I know? Uh yeah, that about does it uh, for the box office report. Uh, next up, let's talk about that. Sh- let's do a little trailer talk. Let's take a look at what's coming up this weekend, which, as I mentioned, are The First Purge and Ant-Man and the Wasp. And since The Purge is coming out first, on a- actually on July 4th, let's take a look at that trailer first. Tonight allows people a release for all the hatred violence that they keep up inside them it changed our country it won't make you feel any better thank you it It challenged our beliefs citizens now witness we celebrate every year how it all began first purge Come say bye. Go do your thing, sis. Always. I'll see you tonight. People are now calling the controversial experiment of legalized crime the purge. Do not purge! Do not purge! You and Isaiah, just stay with me doing the purge. But we're going to be fine on our own. We are here with Dr. May Updale. She came up with this experiment. Is the purge a political device? It is a psychological one. If we want to save our country, we must release all our anger in one night. Tonight? That's not how that works. You'd be better off doing it in like a week, not a single night announcing the commencement of the first purge our neighborhood is under siege from a government who doesn't give a shit about any of us at the siren all crime including murder will be legal for 12 that hours. that line still baffles me of course it's gonna be legal why wouldn't it all crime is legal why wouldn't it be legal your government thanks you for your participation from Universal Pictures. You a much higher level of participation. Human nature does not obey the laws of politics. What the hell is going on? They all ex-military. Something funky going down, dude. You're sending soldiers into the island disguised as citizens. This country needs for this to work. What did you think was going to happen, Marissa Tomei? Coming to help us. What did you... Of course your stupid plan was going to... A nation is reborn. 
forgot about one thing. They forgot about us. What have I done? Run! You exemplified everything wrong about white feminism? I'm coming. Just remember all the good the purge does. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, it's so up its own ass, but um, yeah, uh, the first purge. This, I think, in trying to set up a mythology around it, and like, oh yeah, this totally works in universe. It's it, it's that's when it's at its worst. I feel like for the purge anarchy and parts of the purge election year worked best when they were actually commenting when they were either a delving into the chaos and being like a survival horror style movie or B, being actual political commentary. That stuff's interesting. When it's trying to act like the purge could work, no, dude, do, totally, this could totally work. Tro like, really, if you think about it, it could totally... No, shut up. You have no idea what you're talking about. So, yeah, the first purge, it, I think trying to explain it was a bad idea. They should have just... If anything, the purge should be like anthology movies. The purge should be like, here's what the purge looks like in this part of the country. Here's what the purge looks like in, like, Phoenix. Here's a purge in St. Louis. Here's a purge in Chicago. Here's a purge in Tampa. Here's a purge in Miami. Here's a purge in Seattle. Here's what the purge looks like, and it, then it tackles the issues of the day through them. That I would accept. I feel like this trying to universe build about how the purge could totally work, you guys, is stupid. And that's when it doesn't work for me. So we'll see how that turns out uh, coming this year. Next up, ooh, my most excited. I'm, I want my t-shirt for it at Double Toasted. I'm so excited for this. Ant-Man and the Wasp teaming up. Let's take a look. So, how long have you been Ant-Man again? I love Cassie no, Lang. Just sort of yes! Stature movie win! She is the best! Yes! Amazing! I seem to mess it up almost every time. Maybe you just need someone watching your back. God, the science changing looks even better in this movie. Like Dr. Pim, I actually heard what happened to you. You opened up the quantum realm. That's when this crazy could be ghost who like walks through walls and stuff. Oh my god, a chick's armor isn't contour contoured to her body. It actually it actually works as armor. Oh my god, what a what a concept. Because we robbed you. Do you remember? That's us. On July 6th. It's supposed to be Ant-Man and the Wasp teaming up. Follow my lead. She seems four years intense. waiting for this. Oh, hey, and that that giant ant plays rock band now. Not actual size. You go low, I'll go high. I have wings. Why would I go low? What I miss? We were just tiny. It takes two to make a thing go right. 
so cool. I was partners with Hank on a project called Goliath. How big did you get? My record, 21 feet. You? 65 feet. 65. If you two are finished comparing sizes... 65. God, that's such a stupid joke. Um, hey, you know, nice, nice thing about this movie... Goliath doesn't die giant-sized and is buried in chains. Screw you, Civil War. Yeah. Screw you. Anyway, um... Yeah, I'm excited. I'm pumped. I love that Evangeline Lilly gets to be gets to be the Wasp on screen for, as, as seemingly as major as a major player in the entire plot of the movie. And I love that she and Scott are going to continue kind of building up, if not a romance, then a relationship, like a friendship. Cassie Lang is adorable, and I love her. She is the joy that the Marvel universe needs right now. I'm curious if how if all they're going to tie into Infinity War, or maybe Captain Marvel later on. But I I just like it. Um, I do know that they kind of revealed who is playing uh, uh, Janet Van Dyne, Hope, uh, Hope's mom. I won't reveal it. Uh, it's it's only uh, spoiled in the poster for it because you can see the actress. I won't spoil it, but just you know, if you've seen the poster, you you know who to look for in the movie. And I gotta say, solid casting choice. Can't wait to see how she does. But that about does it for this week, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GummyCatNetworks.com. And if you're there, be sure to check out all of our other fine programming. I just started a new podcast where I read books every two weeks with my friends. We just got finished with um, Frank Bador's The Looking Glass Wars. And I'm going to lead the discussion on the next episode, which premieres next week, which will be on Animal Farm. And we've also covered Julie of the Wolves, um, uh, Lamb, the Gospel According to Christ, Jesus, uh, According to Biff, Christ's Childhood Pal. And we started off with A Wizard of Earthsea. So if you if you want to join like uh, our own little audio book club, be sure to look for Living in the Stacks, only on Gummy Cat. And of course... Um, Donna's doing all of her stuff with the Snarkast, uh, Once More With Feeling, The Family Business, which I need to find a promo for. I, she must have made it by now. Um, uh, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, all of that stuff. Um, I'm talking with Mike to get Majide back up and running. And I, as soon as I can find uh, a, steady, a steady job to pay for stuff, I'm going to try and bring back. And as soon as I – and I also need to edit down the audio – because it's terrible, terrible audio drift, and it's the worst. But I need to figure out um, the how the, the, the I need to work and fix the audio with uh, uh, Tragic Missile, so we can get that back up and running. But yeah, in the meantime, be sure to check out all of our programming, and get and uh, you can also find us not only uh, on our website, but through uh, your various podcast providers, mainly iTunes and Google Play. I've added myself to Spotify, to iHeartRadio. I think I'm on Stitcher now as well. So I'm all over the place on Popcorn Junkie. So you be sure to check me out wherever you find your podcast. And if you can't find me through your podcast app, let me know. I'm going to try and I can try to fix that. Um, and while you're there, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review and let people know that you like this show and that they should check it out as well. 
And speaking of which, you can always share us on social media. Social media home for Popcorn Junkie is facebook.com slash popcornjunkie. That's where all the major announcements are. I probably should have announced the Patreon stuff there, but uh, I'll do it next time. Uh, uh, Twitter.com at cornjunkiepod. That's where I'm doing most of my activity. That's where I do the Twitter munch-alongs and the Twitter um, trailer talks. I just did the munch-along for uh, Sicario. And I can, and I'll probably do one for. I want to try and watch that HBO Fahrenheit 451 because the Dom did his uh, review of it, and I want to. I don't want to go in spoiled, so I want to try and watch that before I watch his video on it. Um, I think those are the big ones. Uh, oh, um, but and of course, uh, Instagram.com uh, at corn at popcorn junkie podcast. That's where a lot of the feed comes from, mostly images. I'm trying to figure out what else to do with the Instagram. And once again, if you have suggestions for what I can do with the Instagram, maybe like a this day in movie history sort of thing, maybe uh, what to expect from the Popcorn Junkie this week, maybe a tra- maybe trailer talk reaction, maybe new trailer reactions. Maybe if you want to see that, let me know. Send all that to uh, popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com uh, for your suggestions, and I'll take them to heart. Um, speaking of which, Stardust... I'm on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie. You can see my uh, uh, react. I haven't been reacting to a lot of trailers. I've mainly been reacting to the movies for the time being. I think uh, when new trailers come out this week, I'm going to try and react to them on Stardust. And uh, But yeah, so if you want to get an idea of what my uh, thoughts on a movie are going to be in the, leading up to the podcast, follow me on Stardust. And there are amazing people there as well. Uh, Epic Voice Guy, the other internet's John Bailey from uh honest trailers he does he does the best honestly the best reviews and reactions he has optimized the app to its fullest go follow him at epic voice guy mars girl uh uh reviewer the the reviewer caitlin uh Sacido, i believe uh mars girl is on there she does some reactions she's not as active um the spill guy the toast the double toast guys are on there uh Corey. Has Corey isn't all that active. Uh, neither is Martin. I, I have to find Sammy. I have to see if Sammy's on there. He probably is active. Um, Chicago Jonathan, uh, who you may know if you follow Spill and Double Toasted, he's on there as well. He hasn't been active a lot lately. Uh, and then you can find your own people. There are plenty of other reviewers and other movie lovers who love reacting to stuff. And if you're a movie lover as well, come join us. Have fun and leave your own reactions on Stardust. If only I had gotten enough people to join before. So, whatever. Um, I think the only other thing is the Patreon. In which case, uh, yeah, like I mentioned, there's a fi- uh, the Bambi and Iron Man 3 ones are available for free uh, to all people following my Patreon. But the Jurassic Park 3 and Jurassic World ones are only available to patrons who donate. So if you want to... So if you want... Um, to, uh, to uh, listen to those and to keep up to date on any new ones that come out, which I'm about to announce what I'm looking to do this week, uh, be sure to follow uh, me on Patreon and to support the podcast. Little as a dollar a month, and then you can get access to all the content. That's at patreon.com slash popcornjunkie. For the munch along this week, I'm going to try and do ants. 
the DreamWorks original animated movie. I think their first one tying into Bugs Life. And I think for um, my, my Make a Better movie, I'm actually going to do The Purge election year. So that way I get to uh, rewatch the election, election year in the lead up to the first Purge. And I can also kind of break down how I would fix the Purge franchise and make it better. So this week, stay tuned for the Purge election year, make a better movie, and Ants, uh, much along. But uh, anything, and if there's anything else you want to say, feedback you want to give, suggestions you want me to make, corrections you want me to make, anything of that like that at all, or if you want to leave your own thoughts on the Sicario movies, Uncle Drew, Allegro Non Troppo, if you're an Italian uh, listener and you want to talk about uh, what you thought about that, if you saw it originally and if you've, if you've seen it in Italian and how it compares, if you're from Italy, uh, let me know. Send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. I'll either reply to you on the, on the podcast or I can always just get back to you whenever I, you know, as soon as possible. So that about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey. And holy cow, the year's halfway over. This is literally July 1st as I'm recording this. So the year is officially halfway over. hell am I doing with my life? The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. just absolutely incredible how much they screw up. Well, I can't tell if that's cop car or if that's ambulance. Looks, it looked maybe more like ambulance from what I could tell. Um, So yeah, that's a thing that happened. Uh, where it's just like, yeah, I don't give a shit. I can't say that on, on the mic.